So, uh, Matt Ridley, thank you so much for joining me. It's uh, very kind of you to uh, uh, join this video cast or whatever they call it. Um, so, I wanted to start talking about COVID, then uh, talk about your new book, How Innovation Works. Uh, but before doing that, uh, I, I just want to remind the audience that you are, of course, a celebrated author of The Rational Optimist, which came out exactly uh, ten, uh, 10 years ago in 2010. And uh, over the last 10 years, you have become one of the most prominent uh, advocates and defenders of the concept of uh, uh, human progress. So let's start there and maybe you can tell me whether you still remain an optimist in the long run about the future of our species. Yes, I very much do. Um, this current pandemic is a setback. Uh, but uh, there have been setbacks throughout the last 10 years. Uh, I've been going around talking about rational optimism for 10 years now, and every year there has been a reason for people to say, well, you surely can't still be a, an optimist because of the Euro crisis, because of the war in Ukraine, because of the war in Syria, uh, whatever it, the, the crisis of the day is. And those are serious crises, as is this one. Uh, but that doesn't prevent the fact that this has been an extraordinarily good decade. The last 10 years has been unbelievably good for poor people. It's not been quite so good for rich people, but that's, you know, that's the right way around. We'd rather it was good for poor people than rich people, I think. Um, uh, so for, if you take the continent of Africa, for example, um, the poorest continent, uh, and one that 10 years ago, people were still saying, you you cannot expect Africa ever to see the sort of levels of prosperity uh, or food security that you see in Asia. Um, well, actually, you are now seeing that. You're seeing incomes double in 10 years in some countries. Um, you're seeing warfare become much less common throughout the continent of Africa. You're seeing mat malaria mortality rates um, down by uh, almost a half um, since... Uh, uh, well, they've halved since the, the beginning of the century, but they've continued downwards at that rate in the last 10 years. So um, uh, on the whole, in terms of lifting pe people out of poverty, in terms of uh, reducing child mortality, in, in terms of defeating infectious disease, including most viruses, but not obviously this one yet, um, we are seeing spectacular improvements. If against that background... Um, uh, a pandemic kills hundreds of thousands of people. It's bad news, but it's not as bad news as the good news that is also coming in. Now, to be sure, in your books and in your talks, you have never claimed that there wouldn't be any problems ahead. In other words, for you, for the matter, for me or for Steven Pinker, progress is not a linear affair where there are no setbacks. Um, do you have any theory on why people keep misunderstanding uh, what we are saying or do they simply ignore the uh, caveats in our work? Uh, yeah, I think it, it's, it's a frustrating experience and you've no doubt had this experience like I have, that, that people assume that you're saying that the world is perfect. Now, curiously, that is the original meaning of the word optimist. It was, it was coined by Voltaire and he was mocking the, um, uh, uh, what's the word, the the theosophists. No, um, uh, I've forgotten the word. But anyway, there's a word for the kind of people he was mo mocking. Leibniz. Is it Panglossians? 
Well, yes, and of course he coined the, the character, the um, uh, the uh, uh, theodicy, I think is the word, theodicy. Um, uh, and uh, he coined the character, he invented the character uh, uh, Dr. Pangloss as a, uh, it, well, actually it's a caricature uh, of his lover's other lover, <laughs> who well, was a math mathematician friend of Leibniz and was a follower of Leibniz. And Leibniz's philosophy was that this is the best of all possible worlds and it cannot be made better. Why? Because God made it and therefore it must be perfect, right? That's the argument. It's a very stupid argument, but it's 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 the argument that was made at, by some people at the time. And Pangloss um, goes around believing this, and he uh, is very nearly killed in an earthquake in Lisbon, and he nearly he's nearly he's hanged, uh, but he survives, and he's uh, involved in a disease and a, a war and all these kind of things. But he still says, no, no, this is the best of all possible worlds. And what Voltaire is mocking uh, is the idea that you can't make the world better. And of course, you and I mean by optimist, someone who thinks that good though the last 10 years was, the next 10 years is going to be even better because this, wor this world is still a veil of tears. There's a lot wrong with it. And that's why it's important to believe in progress, in the ability of human beings to uh, increase their prosperity and their, their well-being. Um, uh, because we're not satisfied with what we've achieved so far. It's not good enough. There are still things wrong with the world. It is still possible to have pandemics. And I did say um, in The Rational Optimist, uh, pandemic flu may yet kill large numbers of people in this century. I didn't call it COVID, but I came as clear. And, and 10 years before that, I said that if we do get a pandemic, it'll come from bats and it'll be a virus. So, um, Yes, I did not see one coming as badly as as bad as this, uh, but I did think that it was possible, uh, and uh, I, I, that is exactly why we need to improve our technology and our society so that next time it comes, it is not such a problem. It seems to me like uh, in your thinking, uh, you are trying to navigate a middle position. On the one hand, you acknowledge that the world uh, is not a perfect place; it can become better. On the other hand, you don't embrace the utopian position, which is that we will ever reach a place where the world is perfect. Um, can you think, where, where did that idea come from? Was it an outcome of uh, some sort of strand of romanticism, uh, French philosophical thinking, that, uh, you know, if we have enough technology, if we have enough innovation, uh, we can make the world perfect for everyone at all times. I don't think you believe that. No, I certainly don't. Uh, I think infinite improvement is possible. And that's quite an interesting contrast with what a lot of environmentalists say, which is that infinite growth in a finite world is clearly not possible. Well, that's not true because growth can consist of shrinkage. It can consist of doing more with less. I mean, we do that all the time. We grow more food on less land. We make a drinks can out of less aluminium. We make a car out of less steel. So so uh, economic growth can indeed reduce our footprint and there's no reason, therefore, it can't continue in effect indefinitely, if not infinitely. Um, uh, so um, I think improvement is is infinite, but the possibility. But I don't think that means we will ever reach a steady state where you can't 
uh, where you wouldn't want to improve it because it's perfect. Um, that sort of utopian view has been uh, the cause of a lot of misery, actually, in the world over the centuries because utopianists have tended to um, uh, demand that society be directed from above by wise men in a somewhat fascist way. Uh, and we've seen that from Thomas More onwards. Utopias are nearly always rather nasty places once you read them, you know, whether it's Brave New World or Thomas More's Utopia. Uh, they turn out to be very unfree, or Plato's version, you know, going right back to, to, to Plato. Um, they turn out to be very unfree places with uh, a, a lot of uh, top-down direction. Well, I don't call that a nice idea. I want freedom. Uh, if I'm correct in remembering something I read in Thomas Sowell a few weeks ago, uh, Utopia of Thomas More didn't have money, but it did keep slavery. <laughs> you know, That's a very nice example. That was, that was, his, that was the extent of his imagination. But uh, um, let's move on and talk a little bit about uh, the, the COVID outbreak. Um, so did we get arrogant and complacent or... Is the pandemic sort of a black swan event uh, that nobody could have predicted? In other words, uh, is it our fault, at least in part, or just bad luck? What's, what's your take on that? Uh, no, I don't think it is bad luck. Uh, I, don't, I think people could have predicted it. I think people did predict it. If you look at the writings of a Hong Kong scientist named Patrick Wu, uh, you will see very, very clear statements that we are now understanding what SARS-like viruses in bats can do directly into people. They don't need much in the way of adaptation through another species. Uh, and we, are, we know that they are out there. There are many more SARS-like viruses out there. Uh, and we know that wildlife wet markets are a very good place to amplify them. Uh, and it is nothing short of a scandal that we have not managed to stop those markets operating. Now, we don't yet know for sure that that is how it got into people, but it does seem to be the leading hypothesis at the moment. And if uh, prescient warnings like that and others saying that the more we find out about these bat-borne SARS-like coronaviruses, the more worried we should be, um, those prescient warnings were ignored. I'm ashamed to say I didn't read them. Uh, had I read them before um, uh, this year, then I think I would have taken them seriously, uh, but I didn't come across these till after the pandemic started. So in that sense, uh, we have every right to be uh, cross with somebody for not being paying more attention to what was happening. Now, who should we be cross with? Well, first of all, the Chinese government, which did something about wildlife markets after SARS, but then reversed it and actually encourage them. And uh, the encouragement of traditional Chinese medicine is a, uh, is a big problem here. And it's a big problem for wildlife as well as for uh, um, zoonoses. Um, the other people I think we should be cross with are people like the World Health Organization who uh, came out in 2015, the WHO did, and said uh, that the greatest threat to human health in this century is climate change. Now that suggests an organization which is specifically charged with looking out for pandemic threats was not looking in the right direction. Uh, and it reacted very poorly to Ebola, it reacted very poorly at the start of this epidemic, and big questions have to be uh, raised over that, uh, I think. Um, uh, more generally, 
and we may come on to this uh, later in the conversation, we have clearly been neglecting innovation in some of the areas that we need it, such as vaccine development. Um, vaccine development is still a very slow and laborious process uh, that takes several years in most cases, um, that is not invested in by the pharmaceutical industry because it's very hard to make money out of a vaccine because the vaccine does itself out of business in short order, if it works, um, uh, and has not been sufficiently invested in by the, the public sector either. Um, uh, the uh, Gates Foundation and the Wellcome Trust uh, set up something called the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovation, which largely focused on vaccine development. But it only started work in 2017 and uh, has hardly made much difference yet. Why wasn't that done 20 years ago? Why wasn't it done by the World Health Organization? Uh, speaking about WHO, so there is clearly a mission creep where uh, an organization which was established to take care of one problem extend it, it, its tentacles into many other things, thereby ignoring its original mission. Um, this bureaucratic creep, is that something that the public should be aware of? In other words, um, okay, let me backtrack a little bit. In this country, because Trump has attacked WHO, uh, WHO has now become something of a cause celebre on, for Trump's opponents. But I think that regardless of where Trump stands on WHO, uh, people should understand how bureaucracies work. Can we talk a little bit about bureaucracies and why it is perhaps unwise to put so much of our trust and faith in bureaucracies? Well, I think when the history of this epidemic comes to be written, we will understand that it was a significant example of government failure, not of market failure. Um, that is to say, uh, the agencies charged with keeping us safe were A, looking in the wrong direction, talking about uh, diet and obesity and smoking, the WHO was to a significantly large extent, um, Public Health England, which is our equivalent uh, agency in the UK supposed to be looking was looking for epidemic risks was spending an extraordinarily small part of its very large budget on uh, um, infectious disease um, so um, now why is this well um, agency the public choice theory tells you that um, public agencies are not uh, completely neutral organizations that always stick to their mission and are as efficient as possible, they are budget maximizers. They always do. Um, it's in the nature of the beast that when you have a bureaucracy, that it justifies its existence by taking on as many tasks as possible and demanding a bigger and bigger budget to do them. Um, uh, and this is where the mission creep comes from. And when Ebola goes away in 2015, uh, the World Health Organization um, is not going to just twiddle its thumbs until the next epidemic comes along. It's going to uh, start scolding us about our food and our. Uh, it, it had a huge campaign against electronic cigarettes, against vaping, even though these are saving lives on a massive scale globally because they're displacing smoking. Um, uh, so uh, I do think that there is a, a huge problem with mission creep, and it's in the nature of the beast. It's not. It's not because there's some evil person in charge. It's because that's what bureaucracies do. Uh, they take on more tasks to justify bigger budgets. Here in this country, the CDC has been particularly 
bad uh, in the initial stages of the outbreak by basically insisting on monopolization of uh, testing kits, which I think set us back about uh, three weeks. So uh, that's a that's a perfect example. Um, and it was worse in this country because we had the same exactly the same phenomenon, Public Health England, um, but they uh, insisted on the monopoly for even longer. And they refused to turn to the private sector for many, many weeks. And the countries that went straight to the private sector and said, please help us solve the problem of expanding the testing dramatically and supplying the logistics to get results quickly back to people. South Korea, Germany, both did that. Both of them have had much less in the way of an epidemic. Uh, we, we already talked about the following, but um, I just want to tease it out a little more. So you and I have been optimistic for a long time about the advances in uh, genetic science, CRISPR-Cas9. Uh, we know that we were able to decode the, uh, the genome of the virus uh, in, a, in an extremely short time. Yeah. Um, what other bottlenecks in addition to um, bureaucra bureaucracy and bureaucratic ineptitude um, and also our, our underinvestment and underappreciation uh, of the state of vaccine development technology can you identify? What, what else has gone wrong? Well, um, as I say, I think uh, vaccines, we, we simply haven't put enough work into trying to work out how to uh, make vaccine development faster and more reliable. Uh, just before the, the pandemic uh, appeared last year, uh, Wayne Koff, who's the head of the human, uh, the Global Vaccines uh, Project in New York, uh, said it, it's a scandal that our vaccine development platforms are still so slow. Um, and, you know, it shouldn't be beyond the wit of man to come up with, with techniques. And I have to say, I was surprised by how slow they are. I write in my book about the development of the whooping cough vaccine in the 1930s, which is a beautiful example of an innovation that never put a foot wrong. It went from an idea to a workable product in about four years. It was two brilliant women who did it, uh, Grace uh, Eldering and Grace Kendrick and Pearl Eldering, the other way around, Pearl, Pearl Kendrick and Grace Eldering. Um, uh, I think I learned about them from you, actually. I didn't know the story before that some years ago. Um, and uh, that took about four years. Well, it takes about four years now to do a vaccine. So that's quite shocking when you think how much faster, as you say, uh, gene sequencing has got, uh, etc. The other... I guess I, uh, sorry, carry on. Yes. The, the other example I was going to give is the development of tests. Um, diagnostic tests, DNA tests for a, a virus are medical devices. They get licensed by the medical device licensing authorities in different countries, European Medicines Agency in Europe. Um, uh, can't remember what it's called in the US. And um, they are very slow at uh, approving new devices. I think you're some... thinking about FDA, FDA the federal drug. Yeah, it's, it's probably the FDA, exactly, yeah. Um, uh, they take, uh, on average, 20 months to uh, approve a new device, um, in some cases up to 70 months. Um, well, if you're an entrepreneur who wants to develop a, uh, a quick but accurate DNA test for infectious diseases, um, and you're faced with the problem that as soon as you've 
got a working prototype, it's going to take you three or four years before you get regulatory approval for it, you're going to go off and invent a consumer electronics device instead because you can't afford to wait around. Your investors can't afford to wait around for three or four years uh, running out of money until you get regulatory approval. So the degree to which the slowness of decisions, it's not the problem that the regulators are saying no, it's that they're taking a very long time to say yes. And the degree to which that has deterred innovators from coming into the field of diagnostic testing is, I think, a big issue that we need to think about. Mm. So this would be a perfect uh, segue to talk about uh, your new book, How Innovation uh, Works. And so I thought I would start by asking you, what is the connection between innovation, economic growth, and then why is economic growth important for healthcare, education, and many other good things that we all enjoy? Because I think that, I, I think you would agree, maybe you won't, that what really distinguishes the last 200 and 250 years from 10,000 years that preceded it was this massive expansion in, uh, in economic growth and consequently great improvements in standard of living. So growth seems to me to be the key, yeah. which then pays for very good health care. Maybe I don't get it right, but if, if I do have it right, what's the innovation's role in all of that? Well, I, I agree with every word you say. The the improvement in uh, economic growth over the last 200 years is truly extraordinary. Um, hundreds and hundreds of percent, um, maybe even thousands, I can't remember. But, you know, uh, many fold increase in the average income of the average person, huge increase in lifespan, doubling basically of lifespan, huge decrease in child mortality. These are the fruits of economic growth. Uh, and they can't happen without uh, enrichment. Um, the word that uh, uh, Deirdre McCloskey uses for the last 200 years is the great enrichment. And as somebody pointed out, uh, no country ever got ever dealt with a health problem by getting poorer. You deal with a health problem by getting richer. But Deirdre McCloskey also goes on to say the phenomenon that caused that increase in prosperity um, should not be called capitalism because that implies it's about accumulation, accumulating capital. It's not about piling bricks upon bricks or dollar bills on dollar bills or even graduate degrees on graduate degrees, as she put it. Uh, it's about innovations. She, she says we should use the word innovism. Uh, and actually, it's quite a good word. I rather wish I'd used it for the title of my book. Um, because the vast majority of those improvements didn't come about for, because we found more land or employed more labor. They came about because we de invented devices that enabled us to produce products in less time and for less work. Um, uh, so basically, they were labor-saving and time-saving devices of all different kinds, whether it's um, uh, the car instead of the horse or the um, uh, mobile phone instead of um, the uh, postman, uh, if you see what I mean. So the, the, there's no doubt that most of our enrichment has come from innovation. It's the big main, it's the huge theme of, of humanity. It also lies behind the things that have gone wrong. You know, it was innovation that led to new weapons, innovation that's led to 
social media disagreements. Um, all these different things come from innovation. So it is, it's the big theme uh, of the human race over the last 200 years, and it deserves to be understood. And it's surprisingly poorly understood. That's where I start my book, saying, look, we know this phenomenon matters, but we don't fully understand why it happens, when and where it does. So, speaking of that, um, you, I, I've read your book by now, so uh, I, I know where you stand on uh, the, the, the fundamental elements of where innovation comes from, or you come close to uh, identifying those, and it has to do with liberty. Can you talk a little bit about uh, innovation and, and liberty, how the two are connected? Yes. Well, if you look historically, you find that innovation comes from uh, relatively free societies. Um, empires are not very good at it. Uh, the Ottoman Empire, the Roman Empire, the Ming Empire, um, the British Empire. These aren't particularly good at innovation. What, are, what is good at innovation uh, is the city-state. So whether it's the, uh, the ancient Greece or um, the Italian Renaissance, uh, or indeed China under the Song Empire, which was a very decentralized empire, um, you find that the freedom to uh, experiment is absolutely crucial because there's, an there's a huge element of serendipity in innovation. It doesn't tend to go the way you think it's going to go. You can plan to invent something and you will almost certainly be wrong. You'll either invent something else uh, or you'll get there by a different route than you thought. Um, uh, and the way you find out how to invent something, how to produce a product that is reliable and efficient and useful and appeals to people uh, is by trial and error. Every inventor discusses the importance of trial and error, the importance of being able to free to be free to experiment, free to invest in one thing, not another, uh, free to change course. Uh, and that's why an unfree society where you have to get permission from the emperor or the bureaucracy to do something first and specify in advance what you're going to do uh, and what you're going to invent uh, and then go ahead and stick to that plan just doesn't work. So, for example, the nuclear industry has been unable to experience any innovation in the last 50 years, really. And the reason is because regulators demand uh, advanced specification at huge expense of every nut and bolt in your design. And you can't change halfway through. And that way, we've been unable to do the experimental designs to find out what works better than the existing designs. So we have to stick to old designs uh, in the nuclear industry. In the digital industry, the opposite has been the case. It's been completely permissionless, to use Adam Thera's phrase. Um, anybody can uh, uh, do anything they like um, in terms of writing a digital program, it seems. Um, within the law, you know, there is still a rule of law, but it's a surprisingly permissive law. And it's very deliberately so. If you go back and look at the 1996 um, Digital Millennium Copyright Act passed by the Clinton administration, you find that it is probably the most libertarian piece of legislation ever passed because it basically says, go out there and start an online business and do what you like. And even if you own a, if you, if you have a website, uh, it's a platform, not a publisher. We can't sue you. Um, you're free to do what you like and see if you can discover ways of, of, of inventing e-commerce. And sure enough, that's what happened. Well, Bill Clinton famously did say that um, uh, the era of big government is over. 
and uh, he did run a, uh, a uh, an administration which, in many ways, um, was uh, quite uh, quite open-minded about uh, economics and innovation and so forth. But that makes me think about the relationship between uh, government and uh, and innovation. So throughout human history, or rather since the birth of agricultural societies, um, governments discouraged innovation uh, because it is very disruptive. Uh, and then uh, in, uh, in Europe, really in the second half of the, of the last millennium, um, something has changed in a sense that, uh, uh, in a sense that governments became more permissive uh, to innovation. Now, Daedra, of course, uh, has identified cultural change. But it seems to me that there is another component uh, to liberation of innovation, and that is interjurisdictional competition, which is to say that because you have so many warring European states uh, fighting each other, but at the same time they want to survive, they have to turn to their middle classes and to their innovators and say, do whatever you need to do to produce more wealth and more technology. Um, do you agree with the sort of interjurisdictional competition um, idea, which of course in American uh, milieu is called federalism, although, you know, much tarnished? Um, and also, how does that apply to Brexit and the European Union and your experiences with the EU and Brussels? Yeah. It's a very good question. David Hume, I think the philosopher, was the first to point out that the reason Europe was stealing a march on China was because it had uh, inter-jurisdictional competition. That is to say, inventors, people like Gutenberg, um, uh, the inventor of printing, were, mo were constantly moving from one place to another to find a congenial regime that would allow them to do what they wanted. And uh, states, particularly in Germany, which was very fragmented at the time, were, were competing to attract and sometimes to, to kidnap um, uh, inventors uh, and keep them in place. Um, so actually, it, it's very clear that a fragmented governance is, is very helpful to innovation. We've had a beautiful example of that, funnily enough, this week. Elon Musk tweeted that he was so cross with California's new plans for some kind of tax, I don't, I don't know the details, that he was going to move his entire plant to Texas, uh, which treated entrepreneurs like him better. Um, that's exactly the point. And that's exactly why America is the exception that proves this rule. Because you might say, well, hang on, America's one big country. It's an empire. It's like, it's like Ming China. You know, why, why is it good at innovation? Because it's not like Ming China. Because it's, it's always had different states with different policies. California produced a particular combination of circumstances and incentives that enabled the... Um, uh, digital industries to take off to an extraordinary extent, for example. Uh, and it now seems to be killing the golden goose that laid those eggs, and Texas may be taking up the challenge. Um, so I, I think it's exactly right that, that fragmented governance works. How does that apply to Brexit and the European Union? Well, very simply, because the European Union is an empire. I mean, I'm sorry, but it really does believe in centralized, harmonized direction. It doesn't it doesn't accept that there must be mutual recognition, that if a product is safe in Britain, then it should be safe in France. We will recognize your means of deciding whether it's safe 
and you can sell it in our country and we'll recognize yours. No, no, no. The European Union has a quite different thing, which is says the rules must be the same in every country. We, it's not mutual recognition, it's harmonization. And that is one of the things that we in Britain have begun to chafe against and to say, well, hang on, this is ridiculous because it, it doesn't allow for experimentation. It doesn't allow for one country to do something better than the other countries. And they might then all copy it. If everything's harmonized, nothing can change. Um, and uh, we gradually got to the point uh, where we found that that wasn't uh, acceptable to us. We asked for uh, reform in this direction reform to, to allow more local variation in the way things are done inside the European Union. Uh, we were not given any changes, any significant reforms, uh, and so we voted to leave. And rather revealingly, um, Guy Verhofstadt, one of the senior members of the European Parliament, gave a speech at the Liberal Democrat Conference in Britain last year, um, uh, railing against our decision to leave, uh, in which he said, you don't understand. We are an empire. You must join one empire or another. <laughs> we don't want to join an empire. We want to be a, a yeah, relatively small offshore island trading with America, trading with China, trading with Europe and doing our own thing. Um, I want to be respectful of your time. So I said we said we, we would do this for half an hour. But uh, uh, if I can do one or two final questions. Yeah, uh, we're fine. I'm enjoying this too much. I'm hungry, but I'm enjoying it too much. <laughs> one. Uh, so um, this could go in two different directions. So one could be that people in America and people in uh, Britain will recognize government failures and will push for greater deregulation and higher economic growth. Or it could go in the other direction, which is which sort of tends to happen more often, which is to say that government didn't have enough power, government didn't have enough, uh, 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 enough uh, resources, uh, enough taxes, uh, enough, enough powers. Um, how do you think this is going to play out in terms of science funding, are we going to see people clamor for more government funding and intervention in scientific development? Or are people going to recognize that actually the saving grace of the COVID pandemic was the private sector and therefore we should liberate the private sector to do what it does best? How do you think it's going to play out? Well, Terence Keeley makes the point very strongly that if you look at South Korea, it spends um, uh, more of its GDP on research and development than Britain. But the vast majority of that spending is in the private sector. It spends much less in the public sector. As a result, its universities are not as strong, uh, but its companies are stronger. And it turned to the private sector right at the start of this epidemic and said, please solve the testing problem for us. And they did. Um, and that's a, 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 a quite a strong argument for the idea that we probably are crowding out private sector research in a country like Britain and to some extent the US uh, by spending so much uh, on public sector research. But I wouldn't want to throw out all public sector research altogether, um, partly because it does some stuff that the private sector might not get around to doing, like astronomy um, or things like that. Um, uh, and partly because if the government's going to take 40% of our income off us, I'd rather it spent some of that on research and development uh, and not all of it on something less interesting. 
if you see what I mean. <laughs> so so I'm, that's my argument for, for keeping spending uh, science in the public sector. But this crisis is a problem for, gov for, for science uh, because uh, it is very clearly showing uh, that science is not as reliable a way of prognosticating, forecasting the future as we thought. Um, it's very bad at forecasting. No shame there. We're all very bad at forecasting. These are complex systems. They're very difficult to forecast. Modeling is, n is not a good way of uh, determining policy. Um, scientists are really good at understanding the world as it is and as it has been, but they're no good at telling you about the way the world's going to work. And this was made very clear in an article in Nature just yesterday where somebody said, this is why we need red teams. We need scientists disagreeing with each other so as to get at the truth through the conflict of their arguments. And this is actually a key point about science. What keeps science honest, what stops it falling into the trap of confirmation bias, is the fact that it's very decentralized and Professor A thinks that Professor B's ideas are rubbish and he says so. Uh, and as soon as you lose that, as soon as you say everybody must sign up to a consensus on, say, climate change, uh, then you lose the honesty of science. So I think there is a crisis to be done there. As for your more general point about whether this crisis will lead to a, a liberalization, I hope so, but I fear not. Uh, I fear the result of a crisis like this is nearly always to increase the power uh, of the state and to increase the amount of tax it takes uh, in trying to get us through a recession uh, and then very gradually to liberalize later. Yeah, well, we'll you and I and many other people who think like us will just have to uh, keep on making these points about the government failure and about um, how the private sector stepped up and really delivered many of the things that the government could not. Um, the very last question, I promise, has to do with what you just said. It made me think about modeling and climate. A few years ago, Indur Goklani produced a very interesting paper about a set of assumptions that go into modeling of one part of the environment, which then ties into another model which is based on a set of assumptions for another part of the environment. And then you put them all together and you come up with uh, an, a model which shows warming of 2.5% or 4% or whatever. But at every stage of that process, more and more um, assumptions have been introduced into the model until it really becomes um, rather tenuous in its relationship to, to reality. Um, what should a viewer... Um, take away uh, from, from the modeling fiasco? And, uh, and, and, and again, could you re-emphasize how the current crisis ties into the climate change uh, issue? Yeah. Well, I think you've seen in this current crisis and in the climate debate, one big mistake which we uh, hear far too much about, which is to treat the output of a model as if it was evidence, as if it was data. You, the language often reflects this. People say our models, I mean, I was reading a paper only this morning, which is actually about climate, but it was saying um, our models have produced this fascinating um, result that climate sensitivity is, is higher than we thought. Well, that's not a result. That depends on the assumptions you put in. You know, that's a thought experiment. Not, a, not It's not a piece of data, but it's often treated as such. And um, what we've seen with the COVID models is that if you don't get things like the heterogeneity of the infectivity 
right. In other words, that children don't pass the virus on very easily. Old people do very easily. Um, uh, and therefore, the, the, the rate of spread is different in different populations. If you don't get that right, you get some, some very wrong results out of, out of models. Um, uh, and and the similar thing applies in the case of climate. There is a, a, a scenario for emissions called RCP 8.5, which has been used far more often than any other scenario by governments to determine the policies that they take in response to climate change. Um, uh, it's fed, almost every model they use uses RCP 8.5. Well, what are the assumptions? Roger Pielke Jr. has gone into this at length and keeps saying, stop using this scenario. It was designed as an extreme scenario with ludicrous assumptions in it that would never come about, but it would be interesting to see what might happen if we did this. So the assumption is that we would be burning 10 times as much coal in 2100 as we are today. Uh, that we would be getting using coal for half of our energy instead of about 20% today globally, uh, that we would be making motor fuel out of coal. Uh, I mean, you know, that there would be 12 billion people on the planet, that innovation and trade would have dried up, great economic inefficiencies would have been, you know, this is a barking mad scenario that's completely wrong already, and yet it is still being used to inform these models. And nobody knows this. Nobody knows. You you see a headline that says, uh, you know, climate change may lead to such and such sea level rise by such and such a year. And you deep, dig deep down and deep down in the small print, sure enough, they used RCP 8.5. So that's a very good example of garbage in, garbage out. So we have to be uh, aware of the limits of human knowledge and um, how much we still don't know about how the world functions and the people within it. Yes, I mean, the, the, the key distinction I make when people say, oh, so you're saying experts are useless. And I'm saying, no, experts are very good at building bridges uh, and uh, other devices. You know, I rely on expertise all the time. What they're not good at is the future. And Philip Tetlock has showed this very clearly over the years that uh, people are very bad at forecasting the future and experts are slightly worse than ordinary people at forecasting the future because they get too obsessed with their own area of expertise. Um, so um, uh, we, we, we need to make this distinction between the present which we're good at using expertise in and the future where we cannot treat experts as gods. They do not deserve to be put on a pedestal. Matt, I'm really very grateful to you for joining me uh, today. Uh, the book is How Innovation Works and Why It Flourishes in Freedom. I've read it, I highly recommend it, and hopefully people will take away uh, some lessons from it, including the vital link uh, between innovation and freedom. And we will, of course, uh, uh, publish excerpts and uh, tweet it on human progress. So with that, thank you very much, Matt, and uh, well, can I just thank you, Marion, for everything you do at Human Progress. It's amazing how much you, you, you put out there and uh, uh, keeping the debate alive. You, you've done an incredible job of building up a following around the world. I know people in the British Parliament who follow you regularly now. That's immensely gratifying. If only more American politicians uh, looked at our output. Thank you very much, Matt. Thank you. Great. Great to talk, Marion. Thank you.